This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. The United States is the only country to have dropped the atomic bomb on wartime targets. And since the A-bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, every U.S. president has threatened nuclear war. In his new book, Empire and the Bomb, How the U.S. Uses Nuclear Weapons to Dominate the World, our guest today, Joseph Gerson, explains why atomic weapons were first built and used, why the U.S. made more than 20 threats of nuclear attack during the Cold War, and how these kinds of threats continue today. Gerson is the Director of Programs of the American Friends Service Committee in New England, the principal Quaker peace organization in the United States. His previous books include The Sun Never Sets and With Hiroshima Eyes. Joseph Gerson, welcome to Weekly Signals. Well, thank you for inviting me. How are you doing today? What's what's the weather like there in Massachusetts these days? Well, it's uh, finally cleared up. It's been it's been an interesting spring. We have heat, and then we've yeah. got cold rain, and we've wow. got the sun back today. That's that's unusual. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I'm I'm glad you have sun back today. Must must feel nice. Uh, let's let's turn back history to the 1940s. Uh, we've dropped the bomb on Japan. It was. Was there a military justification for that, or what exactly happened then for us to to put so many civilians to death? Well, actually, most senior U.S. military leaders opposed the the A-bombings. They recognized that Japan was actually attempting to surrender on terms that we ultimately accepted, uh, and the use of an indiscriminate bomb like the atomic bomb uh, was a violation of, of their understanding of, 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 of how a U.S. military officer uh, in U.S. The ethics of U.S. military uh, should be practiced. Hmm. Um, but you had you had other reasons for the bombing than than, than strict military reasons. So I mean that's that's a, a story that's sort of counter to what I've always understood. That you're saying that most of the senior military ad- advisors to the president or the the, the rank and file or were opposed to it? I mean, That's right. And this is a history that uh, was to have been shared with the U.S. people uh, on the 50th anniversary of the atomic bombings uh, at the Smithsonian uh, Museum. Um, there people would have learned that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Leahy, uh, advised Truman that surrender could be arranged on terms acceptable to the U.S., that uh, General Eisenhower uh, said it wasn't necessary to hit them with that awful thing. Uh, or that even uh, General Curtis LeMay, who was uh, supervising the firebombing, which burned more than 60 Japanese cities uh, to the ground, uh, was clear that Japan would surrender by by September. Um, it was a, it was a defeated country. Yep, because it's the argument has always been that an invasion of of Japan, a land based invasion of Japan, would have cost the United States tens of thousands of of uh, of uh, soldiers, and that this was the way to to ensure that we would, would that they would surrender and we would on the terms so that's right, right i mean truman truman kept increasing the numbers at one point he said it, it saved half a million of our troops uh, at another point uh, he said a million uh, there was a uh, survey done by the us military after the war uh, which said that had the united states uh, invaded uh, kyushu the southern island and and then honshu in uh, 
that would have been in, in August and uh, November of 45, uh, we would have lost as many as uh, 47,000 U.S. troops. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the, the invasions were not necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, Japanese diplomats under orders from the emperor uh, were seeking out U.S. Uh, diplomats and uh, the forerunners to the CIA in, in Europe. Uh, trying to send their former prime minister to uh, Moscow to get them to mediate. And Truman was well aware of all of this. So there had to be other reasons, and I would assume they're political. Uh, they, were, they were definitely political at several levels. Um, one reason was that Truman's uh, secretary of state, his, his former political mentor, Burns, uh, was advising him that if the U.S. public learned that uh, we had spent more than $2 billion to build the atomic bomb, uh, and then didn't use it, uh, that it would uh, undermine his, his chances for election in, in 1948. But a, a more more determinative uh, reason uh, had to do with the Soviet Union, and this was, this was known as early as 1943. Uh, at that point, it was known that Germany wouldn't get the bomb, and as uh, General Leslie Groves, who directed the, the A-bomb project, uh, told senior scientists there, uh, it, was about, it was about the Soviet Union. Uh, ultimately, the idea was to bring the war to an immediate end uh, before the Soviets joined it, uh, so the United States wouldn't have to share influence with them in uh, uh, Manchuria, northern China, uh, Korea, and also to demonstrate to the Soviet Union in the, in the first uh, days of the Cold War uh, that you know, the U.S. had this bomb, uh, what it was capable of, and that we had the will to use it even against civilians. So and in, didn't in fact the Soviets declare war on Japan just a couple of days before the dropping of the first a bomb? Uh, that, that's correct. Uh, by treaty, they with with Japan, uh, they were supposed to wait at least a year uh, after abrogating uh, a non-aggression pact that they had with Japan. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, Stalin had had his ambitions, uh, and they were to enter the war on uh, August the fifteenth, uh, and so there was uh, even increased pressure. Uh, on on the Truman administration from within uh, to uh, uh, bring the war to an end before the Soviets got in. I'm, I'm going to w- run one theory I've had about the dropping of the bomb, and please please feel free to shoot it down if you will. And that is that I also feel that the dropping of the atomic bombs, not only in Hiroshima but Nagasaki, was to demonstrate to the Asian power military powers, present and future that the United States had weapons that could mitigate or negate their vast superiority in, in, in a, a large army over a smaller army like ours. And it would be, a, it would be a, a very useful demonstration to show that we had the capability of wiping out tens of thousands of people. Well, at, at that point, the United States was not so concerned about China, which is, I think, sort of the direction of, of, of where you're going yeah, here, yeah. but really more about, about the Soviet, Soviet Union. Okay. Um, you know, we were at the time almost functional allies with the Chinese communists. Uh, they were providing uh, assistance to our downed um, pilots and so on. We even sent a military mission to to meet with their senior leaders. Uh, but this, of course, changed uh, beginning about 1948 or so, as it became clear the Chinese were going to come to power okay. and the Cold War was on. Okay. We're speaking with Joseph Gerson. The book is Empire and the bomb. And you said that uh, the information was going to be revealed 50 years later that, that we really, it wasn't really necessary to drop right. the bomb. What happened? Why wasn't it revealed then? Well, well, some of it, you know, certainly scholars have known this now for, for quite some time. And, you know, with, within, within the realm of, of academia, um, you know, certainly, certainly the, the analysis that I've put out here is, is sort of, um, 
yes, it's the it's the mainstream view, uh, but not not to the public. Uh, and what happened in uh, 1995 when uh, this exhibit was uh, organized by the uh, Smithsonian Institute, uh, there was really quite a campaign uh, launched to um, uh, keep it from coming into into being. It was launched primarily by the Air Force Association. Uh, I think it's a front for, for folks within the, in the Pentagon now, uh, and uh, won the support of, of a number of right-wing members of Congress. Ultimately, uh, there were budget threats made against the Smithsonian, uh, and they backed down. Uh, so instead of uh, you know being exposed to this history, uh, seeing photographs of the um, uh, of what the atomic bombs wrought, including on civilians, uh, the public was simply shown the uh, the Enola Gay. Uh, the B-29 bomber that um, uh, dropped the, the first atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. Now, you said earlier that, uh, or in the introduction, uh, Nathan had mentioned that it, nearly every, if not every, American president in some form has either threatened to use nuclear weapons or really pushed it to the point where it became an operational option for the U.S. military uh, in ways that we probably don't even know to the extent. Um so, so did Eisenhower threaten to use nuclear weapons? Oh, Eisenhower did repeatedly. Uh, in fact, his whole military doctrine was was based on on, on nuclear threats, what he called massive retaliation. Uh, and and the reasons for this were that, you know, in the wake of the Great Depression uh, and the uh, Second World War itself, uh, he understood that that you know the U.S. people wanted greater economic prosperity and, and economic security. Uh, at the same time, he wanted to hold uh, what what the uh, Council of Foreign Relations described as the U.S. Grand Area, mm-hmm. essentially our global empire, and you know, which would have required at one level uh, to maintain the the level of militarization, the size of, of you know the, the multi-million uh, man uh, army and and, uh, mm-hmm. and military, uh, which would in turn undercut economic uh, development and prosperity. So from his perspective, by relying on nuclear weapons and these massive retaliation for really any violation of, of, uh, of U.S. Uh, ambitions, uh, he could uh, do it on the cheap. Uh, so with Eisenhower, you had, as he came to power, a threat against uh, North Korea and uh, China and Russia uh, to bring the Korean War to an end on, on terms dictated by the United States. 1955, a crisis uh, uh, over Taiwan with uh, China. It was an island, wasn't it? A small island there was a dispute over? Uh, yeah, the small offshore islands, yeah. Kimoi and Matsu. Yeah. Uh, and it was as much about symbolism as anything else. 1956, right, right. during the Suez uh, crisis, um, basically the way that the United States uh, dictated that uh, we indeed were the power in the Middle East after the uh, Second World War and in the wake of the collapse of British and French uh, uh, imperialism. Uh, 1958 was a big year. Uh, there was another uh, nuclear threat over uh, Taiwan, uh, and we just about landed nuclear weapons uh, in Lebanon uh, during the first stages of that country's uh, civil war. Uh, so it was it was repeated uh, many times, and as Eisenhower was uh, leaving office and uh, uh, kind of helping uh, Kennedy with the transition, uh, he had advised Kennedy. Kennedy had run on a, uh, a claim that there was a missile gap, that yeah. the Russians were much more powerful than the United States and, and threatening us with nuclear weapons. Eisenhower told Kennedy 
uh, that in fact the greatest danger of nuclear weapons came not from the Soviet Union, uh, but uh, should we use our nuclear weapons, uh, the possible fallout from our own nuclear weapons. Yeah, I, I remember that there was a, a story that came out years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm-hmm. and they would, and the U.S. military and and the Pentagon did these uh, sort of gaming of what could happen if there was an exchange between the Soviets and the United States, and they came to the conclusion that anything over a hundred, the exchange of a hundred nuclear weapons would essentially destroy the planet. Uh, yeah, but the, the reality there, again, was that and something that, that many of your listeners probably li- lived through. I can remember going to school and not being sure I'd come home alive. Uh, you know, we, we thought that there were two roughly equal nuclear powers confronting one another. In fact, this wasn't the case. Uh, at the time, the Soviets had maybe four uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles um, locations of which we knew and which were, they had to be fueled uh, with uh, liquid fuel, which took some time. Uh, and their bomber force was, was very slow and very vulnerable. Uh, so at the time, uh, at the height of the crisis, uh, Kennedy's senior uh, strategic advisor, Carl Kaysen, uh, advises him that he can, with great confidence, uh, launch a first strike attack against the Soviet Union uh, without worrying about uh, retaliation. successful retaliation. Mm-hmm. And had the United States uh, moved ahead with its with its, uh, its called single integrated operational plan, uh, it would have killed perhaps 550 million people uh, in mm. Soviet Union, China, uh, Europe, and uh, uh, and Japan, and making most of that area uninhabitable for for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. That's right. And and actually, I misspoke. I th- I think the the actual number was something like uh, a 10 to 12 nuclear weapons would have essentially brought the planet to a grinding hole. But anyway, yeah. well, let's move on because, so what you're you know, saying... I, I do have a question. You, yeah. you said that the, the Nagasaki bombing wasn't the last time the U.S. used right. nuclear right. weapons. Right. But what do you mean by that? Can you explain that? Right. Well, this is something I learned from Dan Ellsberg, who um, uh, was one of the senior uh, designers of U.S. nuclear policy for both uh, Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. The way he put it was that uh, these presidents have used nuclear weapons in much the same way that an armed robber uh, uses his gun when he breaks into the local gas station or convenience store and points it at the cashier's head. Uh, whether or not he pulls the trigger, uh, the gun has been used. And so with this overwhelming, terrifying force in, in um, you know, genocidal force, uh, in crisis after crisis over the past 60 years, uh, successive U.S. presidents have, have essentially uh, prepared and threatened uh, uh, you know, to, to inflict genocide around the side. Uh, in order to uh, force other countries to to jump to our tune. So this is really when the when a U.S. diplomat steps up to talk to a, a world leader or, or a prime minister of some kind that we're having some issues with. This is the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room, isn't it? Yeah. When when President Bush uh, uh, tells the world uh, that in relationship to to Iran, all options must be on the table. Yeah and then sends a nuclear-capable fleet to the Persian Gulf, right. uh, he's clearly making a, uh, a nuclear threat. And that we all know, I mean, anyone who's been lived long enough to know, that when, when, a, when a, one of our leaders said all options are on the table, whether it be the Secretary of State or the President, we all know what that means, and they all know what it means. Isn't mm-hmm. that, that's, that's, just, that's right. That's the and, code. And, and in many of the cases, they've, they've gone beyond simply words and you know, moved, Deployment. either moved uh, nuclear weapons into the theater of war, uh, or you know, move the, um, uh, the the nuclear alert status uh, up to as high as DEFCON 1 
uh, in ways that, that, that the people we're, we're threatening uh, will, will know, even if the U.S. people are unaware of it. And we're speaking with Joseph Gerson. The book is Empire and the Bomb. Is there any administration you would say is most guilty of threatening the uh, rest of the world with the atomic bomb? Well, you know, it's hard to make these kinds of judgments. I mean, clearly Eisenhower you know, used it uh, repeatedly. Uh, Nixon, uh, you know, during the Vietnam War and relationship to the Middle East, repeatedly. Um, actually, Clinton did a number of times. Really? Um, in relationship to Iraq, Libya, North Korea. Huh. And the truth of the matter is that any one of these threats, any one of these preparations, had, had uh, accidents happened or... Uh, uh, the president found himself in a position where he couldn't back down, uh, could have led to, to a catastrophe. So you have, for example, in 1994, when Clinton was making threats against uh, North Korea, uh, it was extraordinarily dangerous. Uh, and it took really the uh, creative and, to some degree, undisciplined um, uh, diplomacy by Jimmy, former President Jimmy Carter to, to pull us back from that brink. Mm-hmm. But uh, now, now, following the fall of the Soviet Union, I think a lot of people believe that uh, the dangers of nuclear war were pretty much off the table. Mm-hmm. But, but you're, you're claiming that there, it's even a more dangerous world today. Uh, well, <laughs> today, perhaps, but I mean, even in the, within the last 10 or 15 years, it's been a more dangerous year, uh, world despite what happened with the Soviet Union. What, what I'm saying is that the dangers are, are similar and different. Like most people thought of the... Cold War period, the nuclear dangers in the Cold War period, as existing primarily between the United States uh, and and the Soviet Union, and certainly there was that dimension. Uh, but there were other dimensions that had to do with U.S. dominance uh, in the Third World. Uh, so you have the threats over uh, Vietnam or uh, Taiwan, or uh, you know more than a dozen times in in the Middle East, in order to maintain what. Um, uh, one former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, described as, as the U.S. hold over the jugular vein of global capitalism. Um, you know, it's, it's central to U.S. Yes. global dominance. Uh, but what we see in the post-Cold War period, really beginning with the, uh, the Desert Storm War in, in 1991, uh, are, again, the repeated reliance on preparations for nuclear war in order to hold the, the, the U.S. global uh, dominance to, to enforce what it calls full-spectrum dominance. And you hear, we hear that term. Uh, we heard it a lot at the beginning of the Bush administration, which was this full-spectrum dominance. Mm-hmm. This is sort of the idea of the, the new American century. A lot of the neocons came out of that, that uh, think tank, yeah. that, that camp, and, and they've been talking openly about that for, for many years now. Yeah, well, in, in the book, you know, in terms of the, Bush, the current Bush administration, I actually took a, um, a, a phrase from the New York Times uh, to describe it, uh, you know, it's, 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 we've, we've suffered from a romance of ruthlessness, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly with its its nuclear posture review and its 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 threats, its first strike uh, commitments, its a national strategy statement, which says that our first priority is to prevent the emergence of of a regional or uh, global rival. Not that they should threaten us, but just that a, a new power emerge. Uh, this is, is certainly all new and grows out of the neoconservative uh, madness. Uh, but by the same token, I think it's important for us to see the, the continuity right. of this administration and for us to see uh, uh, the Clinton administration uh, maybe not so much as a bridge to the 21st century, but as a span between the two Bush administrations. So actually the, the concept of full-spectrum dominance, at least the, the phrase, actually came out of the Clinton Pentagon. And what it means is that the U.S. military uh, 
uh, seeks to uh, prepare itself uh, so that it can uh, it can dominate uh, any nation uh, anywhere in the world at any time at any level of power, uh, whether we're talking about uh, rifles, uh, howitzers, uh, uh, bombardments from sea, uh, nuclear weapons, or domination of space. The idea is full-spectrum dominance. And, of course, this leads to blowbacks because other nations, other people have some self-respect, uh, and they don't see uh, their role in the world as being full-spectrum dominated every minute and every hour and every month of the year. So is it fair to say that this policy has prompted, has encouraged m- other nations to to uh, acquire nuclear weapons? Uh, unfortunately, uh, what, I, what I describe in the, in the book is how the combination of the history of U.S. threats uh, and the refusal of the United States, which is the world's dominant nuclear power, uh, to uh, fulfill its, its uh, commitments under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to engage in, in negotiations to completely eliminate the world's nuclear weapons. These are the two principal forces uh, that are driving uh, uh, nuclear weapons proliferation at, at this time. It's something that's been commented about in terms of its hypocrisy you know, by Mohamed Al-Baradi from the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, but also, interestingly, um, uh, even Henry Kissinger uh, and former Secretary of State uh, Schultz uh, have come out uh, this year uh, in an article in, in the Wall Street Journal essentially saying this kind of nuclear hypocrisy is self-defeating for the United States and that it's time for us to begin uh, taking our, our commitments under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty seriously. And the, and the hypocrisy extends also to uh, our looking the other way while Israel has a secret, essentially, secretly, although it's an open secret now, uh-huh. developed uh, an extensive nuclear uh, weapons capability. Right. Uh, both Israel and also uh, India uh, as, as we talk, uh, the United States has further uh, undermined the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, by offering to provide India uh, nuclear fuel. Uh, uh, India is a country that, that developed its nuclear weapons outside of the NPT, uh, and by, by treaty, uh, the United States should not be uh, rewarding it. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, of course, we're threatening nuclear attack against uh, Iran, for doing essentially the same thing. Well, it, it, now that we're there's sort of this looming crisis, um, uh, burgeoning crisis with the Soviet Union or the, mm-hmm. with Russia now. So it, we're beginning to see signs of a maybe a new Cold War with them, and that that obviously isn't a good thing. Is it incumbent upon us, the United States, to begin uh, to take charge of a of a, a destruction of nuclear weapons, of a, a sort of a, a leading in, uh, the world towards uh, the elimination of nuclear weapons is that the the best solution we can we can be looking at? I think there's there's really no hope uh, for uh, creating a nuclear free or or safer world uh, unless the United States, uh, which is the uh, most dominant nuclear power, the country that is most frequently uh, threatened nuclear attack, uh, takes the first moves. Uh, and this is something that, that, that Kissinger, Schultz, and, and others are, are finally pointing to. Uh, at the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference in 2000, uh, the uh, nations of, of the world essentially forced the uh, uh, nuclear powers to uh, reiterate their irrevocable commitment to, uh, uh, you know, to fulfill their, their, their treaty obligations to negotiate the elimination of nuclear weapons, and they identified 13 steps uh, in that direction. Uh, uh, which 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 were agreed to, uh, 
uh, of those 13 steps, the United States has taken half of one, which is to say that it, it negotiated a comprehensive test ban treaty, but is yet to ratify it. The, 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 the elements of a nuclear weapons uh, elimination treaty, the various steps, technological, political, and so on, that need to be taken are all well known. It's, it's really a question of, of, uh, of will, whether or not uh, the human species goes there or we see the global uh, proliferation and, and, and use of nuclear weapons. Well, um, I want to thank you, Joseph Gerson, for uh, for being here on Weekly Signals. The book is Empire and the Bomb, How the U.S. Uses Nuclear Weapons to Dominate the World. Um, thank you for being for being on Weekly Signals. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit NathanCallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.